All right, we're excited to bring to you the answers to the following three questions that we're going to be studying today. Before we go to the questions about the Ten Commandments, let's go first to question number one, which is a seeming contradiction between two passages of the Holy Scriptures. And so someone wrote and showed the uh, book of Exodus 34, 5 to 7, the passage that is written there. And the question is asked, this Exodus 34, 5 to 7, contradict Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. So to answer the question, let's go ahead and look at the content of Deuteronomy 24, 16 first. This is what it says. Father shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. This is the law of accountability. And we know that Yahuwah God's righteousness and holiness and his sense of justice and fairness requires this kind of protocol. We believe in Deuteronomy 24, 16, because Yahuwah God gave it to us as our guide. And so the fathers shall not be put to death for their children, and the children shall not be put to death for their fathers. The person who commits the sin must be the person to die for his or her own sin. Having said that, having put uh, Deuteronomy 24:16 out there, there are those who might say there could be a contradiction between Deuteronomy 24:16 and Exodus 34:5 to 7. So let's take a look at Exodus 34:5 to 7. Uh, then Yahuwah came down in a cloud, stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahuwah. Yahuwah passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahuwah, Yahuwah, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children, in the third and fourth generations. So here in Exodus 34, 5 to 7, there seems to be an apparent contradiction uh, with Deuteronomy 24, 16. What does Deuteronomy uh, 24, 16 to 17 say again? Whoever commits the sin must be the one to pay for his or her own sin. However, when we look at the latter parts, of Exodus 34, 5 to 7, it says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. So the apparent contradiction is, it seems that Yahuwah God is saying that the children will pay for the sins of their parents. Is that what the Bible is teaching? Not at all. First of all, let's look at the context of Exodus 34, 5 to seven. It begins with the grace and mercy of Yahuwah. As a matter of fact, uh, Yahuwah calls out his own name because he wants to show Moses his character, his nature, that of being compassionate, merciful, filled with unfailing love, slow to anger, faithful, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and Sin, And so we know, according to Yahuwah himself, he forgives the sins of people, even if they have rebelled, even if they have committed sin against him because of his unfailing love and 
compassion. However, he does say, I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. Now, who is referred to here as the guilty? And so I wanted to find out and dig deeper. What was the Hebrew word used that represent the word guilty? Because if you notice in this passage, Yahuwah is speaking about his compassion, right? How he's forgiving everyone and lavishing unfailing love to a thousand generations. And then all of a sudden, the theme has a kind of like a reverse twist. He then says, I do not excuse thee. Guilty. Now, who are the guilty referred to there? Well, if we go to the Hebrew of this passage using our favorite website, blueletterbible.org, what we find is unusual. It turns out the word guilty does not have a Hebrew word. It's blank. And so the, the part that says guilty was added on by the translators. It's not in the original manuscripts. However, there are uh, similar passages wherein Yahuwah God says that he will lay the sins of parents upon their children. So let's take a look at that instead. In the book of Exodus 20 in the verses 5, you must now, uh, you must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, Yahuwah your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. So according to the Holy Scriptures, there was an instance when Yahuwah God used the same phrase when he said that he will lay the sins of the parents upon their children. This time in the context of the commandment not to bow down or worship our other gods. This is the sin of idolatry. Take note, the Bible says that he will uh, lay the sins of the parents upon their children. However, it refers to those who reject him. And so when we go back to Exodus 34, those whom Yahuwah God will not clear of their sins are those who persistently reject him. Now, what is the equivalent of those who reject him? In another translation, those who hate him. You see, this is how it usually works. When parents are punished by God, does it have an influence on their children? Yes or no? It does. And so the consequences of the sins of their fathers, it has an effect on their descendants. Perhaps the effect on these descendants is to hate Yahuwah, to reject Yahuwah. Why did you punish my father and mother? Why did you punish my relatives? And so they end up becoming haters of Yahuwah God. And so the iniquity of the sin that began with their forefathers, it had an effect on the succeeding generations. And so the ones whom Yahuwah will punish are those who persistently remain hating Yahuwah God, rejecting him, and not repenting. And so with this light, let's go back to Exodus 34, verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, right? This is Yahuwah God's compassion, mercy, and unfailing love. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Yahuwah God is telling us in Exodus 34 verse 7 that he will show and lavish his unfailing love, his mercy to for thousands of generations forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. However, it doesn't mean that he will clear the guilty or tolerate persistent wickedness. Otherwise, that would violate Deuteronomy 24 16, because if Yahuwah God says he'll be merciful to forgive those who are repentant, if he will also forgive those who were not repentant, then that would violate now Deuteronomy 24, 16. And so when the Bible says that Yahuwah God will not clear the guilty, the guilty refers to those who have not repented and remain rejecting God. And when a person rejects God, it has a tendency to be passed on from one generation to the next. The consequences of that guilt, the consequences of that sin is transferred because it affects the entire family. Hence, the Bible says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so in Exodus 34, 7, when God is punishing children for their sins, oh, it's not for the sins of their parents, but for their own actual sins as influenced by their parents. This is why the message of Yahuwah is, is very clear. We need to teach our children well, because they oftentimes imitate our uh, wrongdoings. This is why the best way to teach our children is by living a good example. Hence, Yahuwah God has instructed Moses to tell the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, Hear, O Israel, Yahuwah our God, Yahuwah is one. Love Yahuwah your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So according to the Holy Bible, the instruction of Yahuwah God is to make certain that the words and commandments of God are impressed upon their children. Why? Because children oftentimes are influenced by their surroundings, especially their parents. Parents have the responsibility, not only by teaching the commandments of Yahuwah God, not only by reminding them of the teachings of Yahuwah God, but most of all, by living the example of obeying the commandments of Yahuwah God. That's what it means to impress it upon their children, not just to teach it, not just to remind it, but to live it. It's only then that you impress this upon the hearts 
of our children. That is important because if parents will not do this, then the influence of their sin will affect their succeeding generations. And if their children and their descendants do not repent of their sin, then Yahuwah God, of course, is going to punish them for their sin. Okay. All right. Let's go to uh, the next question. Hello, Brother John. Hope you are well. If we are celebrating Passover, how come we're not celebrating Easter? Uh, in his church, they don't celebrate Passover, but celebrate Easter as commemoration of the death of Yahushua. And so there are two parts here, the Passover and Easter. We celebrated the Passover, right? Which we know is about remembering uh, the pass, uh, about the uh, Yahuwah God's work of passing over his wrath, not only during the days of Israel, but even during the Christian era by giving Yahusha as the Passover lamb when he died on the cross. This is why we had Yahusha's supper. Remember that? And so we celebrated the Passover. Uh, and after Yahusha died, if you still remember, part of our celebration of the Passover was the fact that Yahusha resurrected. And so when it comes to celebrating Passover, it includes the celebration of Yahushua being risen back to life. That's why we talked about what Apostle Paul said, if Yahushua did not resurrect, then our faith is baseless. Remember, it is of no, it is in vain. Our faith is in vain if Yahushua did not resurrect. So that's all part of the celebration of the Passover, remembering the death and suffering of Yahushua, remembering that he resurrected, and remembering that he will come back and we will feast with him in a future wedding uh, reception wherein we will celebrate our salvation with our king. So that's the Passover. Now, the Easter celebration is about Resurrected Sunday, right? It begins with Good Friday, Resurrected Sunday. And when it comes to Easter, how is Easter often celebrated? You have the Easter bunnies, you got uh, Easter eggs, right? And the word Easter itself, it's supposed to commemorate or celebrate the resurrection of the Christ, right? However, the, the, the use of the word Easter and all of its different ceremonies, all of its different parts involved in the Easter celebration, we need to test and check the, the Bible whether or not it's, if it's uh, required of us. And so what is Easter anyways? Because when you look up the Holy Bible, you do not find Easter. You find Passover, but you do not find Easter. So where did it come from? In the book, My Catholic Faith, this is written, Easter is celebrated on the first Sunday following the first full moon of spring. The feast, therefore, is movable and can fall between March 22 and April 25. The Paschal season lasts till Trinity Sunday. Till then, the joyous hallelujah resounds. So Easter does not come from the Holy Bible. Rather, it is part of the celebration that was established by the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic Church was the one who basically introduced the concept and celebration of Easter. Now, where did it really come from? 
If it's not from the Bible, how did the Catholic Church put it together? Well, when we look at the history of the Catholic Church, there's something we need to learn and understand. What is that? In this book, A Concise History of the Catholic Church, it says millions of pagans suddenly entered the church and some of their customs inevitably crept into the liturgy. The use of the kiss as a sign of reverence for holy objects, the practice of genuflection, devotion to relics, and the use of candles, incense, and other ceremonial features derived from the imperial court. Under this pagan influence, Christians began to face the east while praying, which made it necessary for the priest to lead prayers with his back to the congregation. And so according to this historian who looked into the Catholic Church and how its theology developed over the years, he, made, he mentions about pagans who suddenly entered the church. What was he speaking about? He was speaking about the forced conversion of pagans to adopt Christianity under the leadership of Constantine. We have to remember, shortly after Yahushua went to heaven, the Roman Empire uh, pursued vigorously and persecuted heavily the early Christians. There was a systematic uh, method of persecution, and they really wanted to eradicate the early Christians. Of course, they did not succeed. Despite the persecution, the Christians continued to be strong. Its light could not be snuffed out. And so the first century, second century, third century, until fourth century, they were heavily persecuted. Many were killed at the stakes, thrown into the arenas, to be devoured by beasts. However, time came when someone by the name of Constantine issued the Edict of Toleration. It made it legal to practice Christianity. Not only that, Constantine decided he was going to adopt the Christian religion to be his national religion because he wanted to unite his empire composed of different custom, uh, different cultures, different peoples, different nations. He wanted to unite them at least in one religion. So he wanted to form the universal religion. And in so doing, he forced converted these pagans. But what did the pagans do? Those who entered the church, they took their customs and it crept into the liturgy. In other words, pagan ideas Pagan ways of worship influence the theology of Catholicism. This is why we have Christmas on celebrated on the day of the birthday of the sun, right? The sun god Re, which happens to be on December 25. And so there was this syncretism of the birthday of the sun god and the birthday of the son of God. Let's make it one and the same. So December 25, it is. And also because of this mixture of different faiths and different pagan practices, eventually uh, Yahushua, the Christ, instead of becoming just the son of God, became God, the son, as the second person of the so-called Trinity. So Trinitarian ideas from pagan origins began to creep into the theology of the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church basically represents the evolution of an idea that developed from incorporating many different ideas from pagan concepts and pagan origins. One of that 
is the Easter celebration. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, the etymology, the origin of Easter is really uncertain, but there's a, one of the saints uh, believes it comes from a forgotten dawn goddess by the name of Easter. The English name for the Sunday of the resurrection of our Lord, meat, eggs, and other foods formerly forbidden in Lent are blessed. And there are still numerous local customs, some of pagan origin. And so when we um, look at the etymology, the origin of the celebration of Easter, we can trace its origin perhaps to this forgotten dawn goddess by the name of Easter. But when you go even deeper, there are many other goddesses that have come from Easter. What were, who were they? Well, from this book, Easter Parade, Welcome Sweet Springtime by Steve Englehart. In Babylonia, the goddess of spring was called Ishtar. She was identified with the planet Venus, which because it rises before the sun or sets after it, appears to love the light. This means Venus loves the sun god. In Phoenicia, she became Astarte. In Greece, Istre. Uh, related to the Greek word eos, dawn, and in Germany, ostara. This comes from the German word uh, os, os, ost, which means east, which is the direction of dawn. And so we can see that there's similarities in the different, uh, the different names of this goddess that represents light, that represents spring, and the goddess Easter, as identified by pagan origins, have the following designations. Babylonians refer to her as Ishtar, Phoenicians as Astarte, Greece, uh, Istre, Germany, Ostara, Jews, Ashtoreth. However, it really is just that one goddess, Easter. Now, the Bible warns us about this goddess, this false pagan god named Ashtoreth, mentioned in Jude, uh, Judges 2, 11 to 13. Then the children of Israel uh, did evil in the sight of Yahuwah and served the Baals. And they forsook Yahuwah God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked Yahuwah to anger they forsook Yahuwah and Serval and Ashtoreths. And so even during the days of Israel, there was this reference to a false pagan god. We know about Baal, but there was also, in addition to Baal, the Ashtoreths. And we know from looking at other so-called goddesses of the past, the Jews, the Greece, the, the Grecians, uh, Greece, Germany, Phoenicia, Babylonians, they all have different versions of that same goddess. So we can, so the, the word Easter then, it's not biblical in terms of it being taught by Yahuwah God. Instead, it is biblical in a sense, it teaches it as a pagan name attached to a pagan God, right? This is why we don't call Passover Easter. We call it Passover. That's what the Bible teaches us to call it. Now, how about the other parts of the celebration of so-called Easter? For example, the Easter egg. Where did that come from? We know it did not come from the Holy Bible. From the Handbook of Christian Peace and Customs, 
The origin of the Easter egg is based on the fertility lore of the Indo-European races. The egg to them was a symbol of spring. In Christian times, the egg had bestowed upon it a religious interpretation, becoming a symbol of the rock tomb out of which Christ emerged uh, to the new life of his resurrection. And so when Christianity took deep root in uh, Europe, they began to more and more members enter the church and the idea of the resurrection was incorporated with the other ideas within the area so that they can put an integrated faith together, including the Easter egg. And how was this Easter egg treated? Let's read here in the Egyptian belief and modern thought. thought uh, eggs were hung up in the Egyptian temples. Bunsen calls attention to the mundane egg, the emblem of generative life proceeding from the mouth of the great god of Egypt, the mystic egg of Babylon hatching the Venus Ishtar fell from heaven to the Euphrates. Dyed eggs were sacred Easter offerings in Egypt, as they are still in China and Europe. Easter or spring was the season of birth, terrestrial and celestial. So even uh, the, the uh, incorporation of dyed and colorful eggs has pagan origins. And so the name Easter, the use of eggs, the decoration of eggs all come from pagan origins and practices. Well, how about the rabbit? Where did that come from? Cyclopedia Britannica, the hare, the rabbit, the symbol of fertility in ancient Egypt, a symbol that was, that was kept later in Europe. Its place has been taken by the Easter rabbit. And so even the Easter rabbit has its origin in an ancient fertility practice or belief stemming from ancient Egypt. And so when we look at Easter and its celebration, it has, quote unquote, the theme of resurrection, right? But it's told using a different frame. It uses the frame of paganism. The theme is there, resurrection, right? But the framing is off. It is pagan. And so it uses the, the pagan frame of a hare, an egg, and Easter. And so this is a pagan practice make, made into a Christian festival. However, Apostle Paul warns us in Ephesians 4.17, therefore I say this, indeed, in union with the Lord, I insist on it. Do not live any longer as the pagans live with their sterile ways of thinking. In Jeremiah 10, 2 to 3, thus says Yahuwah, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the sign of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are futile. And so we, in our work in the assembly of Yahusha, what we want to do is to restore everything back to its pristine form, right? This is why everything that has been corrupted by pagan influence, we are undoing slowly but surely. For example, when it comes to God, we are restoring what the Bible teaches about God. There's only one God who is the Father. There's no Trinity. We are restoring the name of God. Whereas before, uh, people said you cannot pronounce the name of Yahuwah God, or they called them by, by different names. We are now restoring the name of God. So in many aspects, what we're doing in the assembly of Yahusha is to restore everything 
back to the way Yahuwah God intended it to, in the best of our ability, by going back to what the scriptures actually uh, tell us. Okay? All right. So now let's go to a series of questions about the Ten Commandments. Question number one, uh, the number fourth commandment, Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here's a question. Why? In the former church, I'm not going to mention what church that is, because it could be any church, right? But in the former church of the person asking, why are we not observing the Sabbath? Okay? And there are many churches today who do not observe the Sabbath. And so what is their usual response? Um, not just the response of this former church, um, but also the response of many other churches when it's when they're asked the question, why don't you observe the Sabbath anymore? Well, this is usually their answer in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And so when people ask, how come you don't observe the Sabbath anymore? Usually the response is Colossians 2, 16 to 17, wherein they will point out what Apostle Paul said, that you should not judge anyone about their Sabbath day, about the religious festival, because that represents the Old Testament, which is a shadow of things to come, the reality is found in who? Christ. So in our era, the Christian era, under the new covenant, we are no longer required to keep the letter of the law uh, during the old covenant, right? And one of the letters of the law was concerning the observance of Sabbath day. Having said that, it doesn't mean we are to disregard Sabbath day. Why? Because we have to keep in mind the reality. The reality of Sabbath day is found in who? Yahusha the Christ. And so in a greater aspect, we are able to observe the Sabbath day through Yahusha the Christ. So it's wrong to disregard Sabbath day. Because when you look at what Apostle Paul is saying here, you have shadow and then reality, right? Shadow was the Old Testament, and then reality was who? Christ. And so it's foreshadowing what is eventually to come. What is the equivalent of that? Letter, the Spirit. And so the Old Testament, those who were under the law were required to keep to the letter of the law. But in the New Testament, we are called upon to keep the Spirit of the law. And so when we look at the Sabbath day, we want to know the Spirit of that law, the purpose of Yahuwah God in giving it to man in the first place. That is what we are going to follow. Now, other religions will also say, well, we don't observe Sabbath day because also it mentions in Acts 20, verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, 
Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, there are some churches today who say we should worship God on the first day of the week, which is what? What's the first day of the week? Sunday. Sunday. So I was curious. I wonder what the Greek actually says. Does it actually say Sunday or does it say Sabbath? What do you think it says? And so when these Christians met together and Apostle Paul spoke until midnight, what was that day? And so I looked at the Greek word that was used. Again, using our favorite tool, going to blueletterbible.org. And we, put, uh, we punched in Acts 20, verse 7. And we got this. The first days of the week. It turns out the phrase days of day of the week, because it says the first day of the week. Day of the week is the Greek word for 521, which is sabaton. So in Greek, in the Greek manuscripts, it doesn't say the first day of the week. It actually says the first Sabbath. The first Sabbath. And so when you look at Acts 27, now on the first Sabbath, when the disciples came together to break bread. I just thought I found that interesting. However, like what Apostle Paul says, we are not to judge about Sabbaths or religious festivals, but we do need to underscore the, the, the fact that although we are no longer in the old covenant, right, we are in the new covenant, it doesn't mean we are to disregard the the Sabbath. And we have to be careful with enforcing some of the laws that was taught during the Old Testament under the law of Moses and making that as part of the requirement for our salvation. Because if you do that, Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, 1 4, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in the slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this, if you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. This is why we will not insist, we will not say, obey the laws of Moses because if we will insist that, then we are cutting ourselves from who? From Christ. Because the Bible says he has set us free so that we will no longer be in bondage of slavery to the law of Moses. Now, what exactly does that mean? We'll find out later because it's connected to the third question. But let's go to question number two for now. Did Christ Yahusha abolish Sabbath? How can we observe the Sabbath through our Lord, Yahusha HaMashiach? Good question. Did Yahusha abolish the Sabbath? Well, why do some think and believe that Yahusha abolished the Sabbath? In Mark 2, 23 to 24, one Sabbath day, as Yahusha was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Yahusha, look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? And so why do people think that Yahusha abolished the Sabbath? Some of them will probably go to Mark chapter 2, 
23 to 24. And in this passage, uh, the Pharisees criticized Yahusha because his disciples were breaking off heads of grain to eat. And so according to these Pharisees, when they broke the broke off the heads of grain to eat, they were working. And it was Sabbath day. They should not be working. But the problem was they were hungry. And so uh, the disciples of Yahusha, they were hungry. There were some uh, wheat available, uh, grains available to eat. And so they broke it off and they began to eat it. And so Yahusha was being criticized. Hey, your disciples are harvesting grain on the Sabbath. And they're saying that Yahusha abolished. Some, those who interpret this, interprets this that Yahusha abolished the Sabbath. But what was the reply of Yahusha HaMashiach? We read 24. Let's read 25 to 26. Yahusha said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. So what did Yahusha say to the Pharisees when the Pharisees accused him of abolishing the Sabbath? Uh, Yahusha uh, said and referred to an incident where David and his companions became hungry. And so there was bread, the loaves of bread, but that was in the temple, but only the high priests could eat that bread. They were not allowed to eat that bread according to law, but they broke the law by eating the, the sacred loaves of bread. And he also gave some to his companions. And so what was the point of Yahushua? Why did he teach that uh, to the Pharisees? Because he wanted to teach the Pharisees that the intent of the laws just like the intent of the Sabbath is uh, for the, to, is to help humanity, is to help people. The spirit of the law sometimes requires us to break uh, or to do something else with the letter of the law. In this case, the letter of the law says you cannot eat the bread, but the spirit of the law because Yehovah God's intent for the Sabbath is to help humanity, to help mankind, well, then you can go ahead and eat that bread. After saying this, Yahushua said in 27 to 28, and Yahushua said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not the people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And so according to Yahushua, the purpose of the Sabbath is to meet the needs of People, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the whole purpose, the intent, the spirit of the Sabbath is to help humanity, to help human beings. So did Yahushua, did he break? Did he abolish the Sabbath? No, he wanted to teach the people its deeper meaning and purpose. What is that? The deeper meaning and purpose of the Sabbath is so that people's needs can be met. And when it comes to uh, human beings, we have needs, right? The Sabbath meets our needs, both physically and spiritually. Why? Well, what is the purpose 
the intent of the Sabbath. Let's read the book of Exodus 28 to 10. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. You have six days in which to do your work. But the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to me. On that day, no one is to work, neither you, nor your children, your slaves, your animals, nor the foreigners who live in your country. So according to the Holy Scriptures, what is the intent of the Sabbath? What is its deeper purpose and meaning? What's the spirit of the law behind the giving of the Sabbath? The Bible says it's so that we can have rest. And physically, is that needed for us human beings? Yes. This is why the deeper purpose of the Sabbath is for human beings to replenish, to find rest, so that they can continue to work. Work and rest. That's the pattern Yahuwah gave. This is why he worked for six days at creation, right? And then on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested. It was a pattern that we are to follow so that we can have proper rest. A spiritual need is also meant. Because what else is the purpose of that Sabbath? It's so that we can dedicate ourselves to who? Yahuwah God, who created all of us for the purpose of worshiping him. And so the deeper meaning of the purpose of the Sabbath is so that we can set apart a day wherein we will recognize and worship Abba and at the same time find physical rest so that we can recuperate and replenish so that we can continue to work. And how is this fulfilled during the Christian era? Why did Yahushua say that he is the Lord of the Sabbath? Let's read Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Then Yahushua said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. How can we fulfill the Sabbath during through Yahushua? By going to him. So when we find ourselves in Yahushua, when we have fellowship with him, when we're baptized in him, which is essentially what it means to be yoked to Yahushua. When we are with him, we find what? rest. We find the true Sabbath rest in Yahusha. Because when we are in Yahusha, we are brought into fellowship with who? Yahuwah. Because Yahusha said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to the Father except through me. And so it meets our spiritual needs and even our physical needs. Because when we go to Yahusha, he gives us both physical and spiritual rest. This is why the observance of the Sabbath is really by having fellowship with our King Yahusha and worshiping Abba through Yahusha as parts of his one true body, the assembly, the body of Yahusha. Okay. All right. Let's go to number three, which is still related in the former church. Not going to mention what church that is. Right. We made our own. Ten Commandments years ago. That's not a good sign when you when churches start making their own Ten Commandments. That's not good. <laughs> we can tell you that much even before we answer completely this question. If there's a church that makes their own Ten Commandments, that's not good, right? You can have ten guidelines, 
right? Or 10 explanations or 10 supplementary commands, because there are many commands of the Holy Bible. I mean, even in the Old Testament, there was not just 10 commandments. But when you say 10 commandments, that's referring to what? The special Ten Commandments that Yahuwah God gave to Moses. This was special. This is why it was, it was made into two tablets of stone. You don't want to mess with that. You don't want to replace that. That's why when, when a religion or a church tells you, you know what, we have our own Ten Commandments, run away. <laughs> Get away from that religion. Get away from that church, okay? In the former church, we made our own Ten Commandments years ago. Although the verses were written in there... Uh, written in there can be found in the bible i feel that it gives emphasis on other things like for example the new 10th commandment. i have no idea what that new 10th commandment is right? it also feels that the requirements to be saved and to serve god have been changed this is why it's dangerous to change it we have no authority we humans we puny humans here on earth we have no authority to change the Ten Commandments. Who are we to do that? Yahusha did not even do that, right? We're not to change the Ten Commandments. So I remember the scene in Exodus where Abba Yahuwah wrote on the tablet his Ten Commandments and gave it to Moses. And here's the question. Was it right to change the commandments of God? What's the answer? No. Well, why are we sure it's not right to change the Ten Commandments? Well, this is what Yahusha said. Matthew 5, 17 to 19. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone, you know, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be, called, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So according to Yahusha himself, do we have the right to replace the Ten Commandments? No. Yahusha even said if you break one of the least of these commandments, you will be called least. That's just breaking one of the least and teaching others to do so. How much more if you replace the whole set of Ten Commandments, right? That's definitely wrong. Yahusha said that he came not to abolish, but to fulfill them. Then we read earlier that we were set free, right? From the law of Moses. That's true. But what is the purpose of us being set free from the law of Moses. Is it to replace the law of Moses? Is that it? We got to find out. Hebrews 9, 14 and 15. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. First of all, what does it mean? That we are set free from the law of Moses. It means we are set free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This is why if we belong to Yahusha and he died for us, 
then we are no longer condemned. Why? Because Yahushua already paid for our sins. He satisfied the requirements of the law. So when it says we are set free from the law of Moses, it's not that we are going to establish another law or change the law of Moses. Instead, we are set free from the sins committed under the first covenant so that we can now belong to a new covenant. Now, in the new covenant, what are we called upon to do? Does it mean there's no more law? There is. Well, what kind of law is it? What is that law? Let's read the book of Romans 8, 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ Yahushua, because through Christ Yahushua, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death, right? That's the law of Moses concerning those who do not meet fully the requirements of the law. They're going to have to die. Okay, so we're set free from that because of Yahushua. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So when Yahushua died, because Yahuwah sent him to be a sin offering. When he died, the requirements of the law was met in us when we are parts of the body of Yahushua. Okay, so we're set free now from the requirements of the law who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. So when we were set free from the law of Moses, it is so that we can be under a new covenant. And under this new covenant or agreement, what is the law? It is the spirit, the law of the spirit of life. That's why in verse 2, it says, because through Christ Yahushua, because when we're in Christ Yahushua, we belong to the new covenant. Through him, he's the mediator, right? And so when we are in Christ Yahushua, we now are under the law of the spirit of life, right? And so what does that mean? It means we are led by the spirit. We follow the spirit of Christ. No longer the law of Moses per se. And this is an important point. It doesn't mean that we are following a different law. The spirit of life doesn't mean we replace the law of Moses. No, Yahuwah set us free from the curse of the law so that we can fulfill the spirit of the law. You get that? So the law was not replaced. The law remains the foundation because under the new covenant, we are to fulfill the spirit of the law, but the law is still the foundation. And so how does that work? How can we be led by the spirit under the new covenant? Let's read 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. You, show, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So how are we led by the spirit under the new covenant? By means of the spirit of the living God, writing on our hearts, making a reference to the Ten Commandments, right? But writing on our hearts how the letter of the law translate in our current situation so that we can fulfill the spirit of the law. And so what the spirit will do is it will take the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, and with the Ten Commandments, the Spirit will write in our hearts the purpose of that commandment in the given situation where we are in. 
so that we can satisfy the fulfillment of the law. And so the law is still foundation. It's still there. The spirit interprets that for us so that the spirit of the law will be fulfilled in us. What's an example? It's like what we said to you earlier. When David went to get the temple bread, he broke the law, right? But what was the spirit of the law? The spirit of the law allowed him to eat the bread. And so when we know the spirit of the law, then we can obey the law of Moses. Now, what is the spirit of the law? Well, because when it comes to understanding the law of Moses, when you look at it, in fact, even the laws of the prophets, it really only has one purpose, which can be interpreted in so many ways. This is why we let the Holy Spirit interpret that, how we apply it in our hearts. What is that one purpose? If we were to ask you, what is the one purpose? What is the one spirit of the law that Yahuwah God gave to Moses? Do you know what it is? I'll give you a hint. In Matthew 22, 37 to 40, Yahusha replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if we were to ask uh, you brothers and sisters, what is the one underlying purpose of the law? Why was it given? What was it trying to teach us to do? What was it? It's only one spirit, one purpose. What do you think it is? Yahusha said the two greatest commandments, love your God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law, you see that? All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What do the two commandments have in common? Yeah, love. That's the one spirit and purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to get us to love, to love. And when we are under the new covenant, it does not reject the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments gives us the framework by which we can love. But the, the Spirit teaches us to go beyond the letter of the law so that we can satisfy now the what? The Spirit and deeper purpose of the law. This is why Apostle Paul said, you, my brothers, were called to be free. Yes, we're free. But not free to create our own commandments. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is why during the Christian era, under the new, the new covenant, we must be led by the Spirit. The Spirit. The Spirit will teach us how to apply the law in our life. So we follow the Spirit. Well, how can we know if we are following the Spirit? Now that we're not depending on the letter of the law, how can we know if we're doing that? Let's read Galatians 5, uh, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is, what does it say? Love. And from love comes joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So according to scriptures, how can we recognize those who are 
following the lead of the spirit because under the new covenant the spirit now is what leads us to apply the law given by god to moses so that we can satisfy not just the letter but also its spirit and purpose what's the proof the result is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self control this is why when we let the spirit control our life we are able to satisfy the full requirements of the law as well right and so that's what yahuwah god wants to lead us so when yahusha came here he did not abolish the law rather he used the law as a standard but he he made sure that we understood the purpose and the spirit of the law. Now, before we go ahead and conclude, I'll give you an example of Yahusha doing this in the book of uh, Mark 10, 17 to 19. As Yahusha started on his own, uh, started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Yahusha answered, no one is good except God alone. You know, what did he say? When, he, when Yahushua said the commandments, what was he referring to? The Ten Commandments. That's why he gave examples. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not be, uh, defraud. Honor your father and mother. Right? And so Yahushua, when he was asked what you need to do to inherit eternal life, he did not dis disregard. He did not abolish the Ten commandments he said instead follow the 10 commandments so my question to you is does that tell you that the 10 commandments still has bearing absolutely <laughs> absolutely it's the foundation of our obedience but we have to go beyond the letter of the law that's the whole point of yahusha and his teaching not to abolish the commandments but to satisfy not just its letter but it's spirit. And how did Yahushua do that? Take a look at this. We read 19. Let's read 20 and 21. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Perhaps he kept the letter of the law, right? Yahushua looked at him and loved him. Wow. We need to be loved by Yahushua, right? And then take a look at this. Yahushua says, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And so here's Shehusha. When he was asked by this man, what do I need to do to gain everlasting life? Yahushua said, keep the commandments. Do not steal. Do not lie. Uh, and the other commandments. Right? And then Yahushua, and, and then the, the man said, I, I have obeyed. All these I have kept since I was a boy. And then Yahushua says, one thing you lack. Here's my question to you. Why did Yahushua say one thing you lack? This man, was he able to keep the requirements of the law? The letter of the law? Yeah, he did not steal. He didn't need to steal. He did not lie. He did not defraud, right? He did not commit adultery. But there was one thing he lacked. You know what that was? He did not understand the spirit of the law. He understood the letter of the law, but he did not understand the spirit of the law. What is the spirit of the law? What was it again? Love. 
See, when it comes to love, it's not about not doing to others what you don't want them to do to you. It's about doing to others what others want to do to you. It was active, not passive. That's what love is. You see that? And so what was lacking in this rich man was that he understood the letter of the law, but he could not yet grasp the deeper purpose of the law, which is to love. This is why when you sell everything you have and give to the poor, what are you showing? You're showing love, right? I mean, there's no law that says sell what you have and help the poor. But when you have this love, then you can do something like that. And this is what Yahushua is trying to point out. And then he says, come and follow me. Why? Because even though this, this uh, rich man may be able to say, I've kept the commandments. Can you really perfectly obey all the commands? It would be insufficient. Our very best is not sufficient. Because what is sufficient is perfection. And there's only one who is perfect. That is Yahusha. That's why Yahusha said, come and follow me. And so Yahusha was introducing to this man, not just the spirit of the law, but also that only in Christ can we fully satisfy the totality of the law so that we can be set free from the punishment of the law and receive salvation, okay? This is why you must never ever say, replace the 10 commandments, no. But you know what? The Bible does give us a warning about those who will try and replace the law. And it's not, not a good one. Let's read one more passage before we pray. The book of Daniel 7.25. And this is a prophecy about becoming antichrist. And this is what Daniel reveals. He will speak against the most high and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. What laws could that be? The laws of God. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and a half time. This is in reference to becoming antichrist. But we know Apostle John said that the spirit of the antichrist is already at work. And one of the characteristics of the antichrist is they will replace the law. They will replace the commandments of Yahuwah our God. And so brothers and sisters, let us use the Holy Scriptures to protect us and to preserve our salvation. If Yahusha did not change the laws of God, who are we? Who are we to do that? Yahuwah did not change it, but he sent the spirit to interpret it so that we can apply it, not just by keeping the letter, but it's deeper purpose to meet love satisfy love which is the ultimate purpose of the loss of Yahuwah our God okay all right that is our lesson for tonight let us all stand and we shall pray together everlasting Abba yes thank you so much for all of your blessings yes. thank you for the clarity of your holy work yes we know that from the very beginning you have given us a pattern Yes. sound pattern of scripture by yes. which we can be guided Amen. father we know during these last days yes. there will be many spirits of the antichrist yes. there will be many imposters yes. and so teach us 
to understand the purpose of your teachings, yes. to adhere to them, to hold on to them, yes. that we will never be deceived by the adversary. Amen. Yahusha, our king, yes. teach us to accomplish the law. We know that you want us to observe them, yes. but according to your spirit. And so we follow the work of your spirit. Yes. May you lead us through your spirit, writing in our hearts, the commandments we are to obey. Amen. Father, please bless your people always, yes. especially those who are going through difficult times. Yes. May you heal us of our sicknesses yes. and make us worthy before your presence. Amen. Father, we believe that you have blessed your people throughout the earth. Yes. We ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.